For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about what it looks like to be a winsome follower of Jesus. And I think in our culture today, the idea of somebody being a winsome Christian seems like sort of an oxymoron. But as we'll see, Peter gives us this vision, this picture of what it looks like to be someone who is a loving person who is characterized by certain virtues and is able to engage on an intellectual level with people who have questions about Christ. Let's begin in 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Peter says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. So again, going back to our context, we've been studying what it means to live in a way that is winsome or to conduct our way, our lives in a way that is attractive to the non-Christian world. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So he says, listen, people are going to say all sorts of things about you and your beliefs in me. But what you need to keep in mind is you should live in such a way, conduct yourself so that people can look at your life and see that's attractive and that because of your good deeds, they may observe them and actually grow interested in Christ and hopefully come to faith in him. So really, the whole point of this is not to just avoid people saying things about us or mocking us or making fun of us for our beliefs. It's ultimately to try to pique people's interest in Christ by the way that we live. So Peter continues on in this theme as we look at this passage. He says, to sum up, you want to look at all of these qualities And they should be qualities that a winsome Christian follower has. So the first thing he's going to point out is we should possess these winsome qualities. He says, first of all, we should be harmonious, which the word literally means to be like-minded. You think about our culture today, and people are constantly fighting and arguing and hurling insults at one another. Most people in our culture have adopted sort of this us versus them mentality. And anybody who happens to disagree with you and your views, what you what you do in that case is you attack them, you insult them, you silence them, you try to shut them down. And what Peter says is we should not be like our culture in that way, that we should be willing to disagree in a way that's productive, but also not to go into this attack mode when somebody disagrees with us. Now, we should point out, unity isn't the same as uniformity, where everybody talks the same, thinks the same, and believes the same things where, uh, on various different issues. What we see, actually, in God's spiritual community is there are diverse views about a lot of different issues that are important. Nor is it the same as unanimity, meaning 100% agreement about everything. Again, in our church specifically, there are people who hold very different political views. They have different views when it comes to social issues. And 
That's great. To think that thousands of people will believe and hold the same views 100% of the time makes no sense at all. And yet, one thing that we do find commonality in is following Jesus. That we have placed ourselves under the authority of what God says in his written word. And that then becomes the basis for living together in community and striving together toward one goal, even though we may disagree about a lot of different issues. And so what Peter's telling us here is that you should avoid the kind of infighting and the petty arguments that you see out in the world. And really, when people come to see your spiritual community, it should stand out by contrast. That even though there are diverse views and maybe even strong disagreement about these views, that the commonality that we have in Christ makes us different. He also says that we should be sympathetic. This kind of reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 15, verse 13, where he says, weep with those who weep and we should grieve and, and rejoice with those who rejoice. One of the things that God wants us to do is he wants us to get excited when people have things in their lives that are important, that have happened. And I think You know, for some of us, it's a little bit hard because we're sort of locked up in our affect, like we have a really hard time sort of expressing how we feel. And so it may require a little bit of exertion on our part if we're more deadpan to get excited when people are celebrating something amazing happening in their lives. On the opposite side, that may mean entering into grief when somebody's experienced tragedy or are going through trials. It's likely that you are going to have somebody in your home church or somebody in the church that you know who is experiencing some sort of suffering. And one of the things that God wants us to do is he wants us to learn how to empathize, how to enter into that person's suffering without throwing out all these simple platitudes that are offensive, but being with people learning how to comfort them, and initiating in these situations, even if it means feeling a little bit awkward. He also says that we should be brotherly. This is the word in Greek, philadelphos, which you probably realize is where we get the word Philadelphia from, the city. The city of brotherly love, which these days, I'm not sure you get too much brotherly love in Philadelphia. (laughs) probably get mugged. Um, But what he's talking about here is this sense of warmth and love that you experience in community with one another, and that that should be attractive to the watching world. He also says that we should be kind-hearted, which I think for some of us, we're, we're not really very extroverted people. This is a little bit difficult for us to be friendly and outgoing And sometimes when we think of being kind-hearted or being a kind person, it almost feels unnatural, like I have to be somebody that I'm not, to be this really nice person who's always smiling and stuff like that, you know, like acting like we're Mr. Rogers or something like that. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about being a generally friendly person that fits your personality. You don't need to be fake. There are tons of people who are introverted people who are very friendly and are able to engage in conversation. Finally, he says that we should be humble in spirit. 
This should be one of the number one characteristics of a Christian. And again, we're not, we're not talking about the kind of false humility that you often see where, as a matter of social etiquette, when people are lavishing praise upon us, we in embarrassment say, oh no, please, stop, you're embarrassing me. Please stop talking about how great I am. When inwardly we're like, yes, please, lavish me with more praise. Keep massaging my ego. That feels really good, right? We genuinely uh, recognize as believers in Christ our true standing. That's what humility means, is having a sober judgment of yourself. Which means that we have a realization that the things that we have, whether it's our gifting, whether it's our talents, whether it's our drive, our personality, our athleticism, or even our appearance. All of those things are what God has given to us. We didn't earn those things. And so there's an acknowledgement that I'm not that great because it's God actually who gave me these qualities. And more importantly, this right standing that God has given to us in Christ is something that we cannot earn because of our good works. There's no way that we can climb this ladder to God by being a good person. God says that we all are guilty before him, but that in his abundant mercy and love, he sent his son Jesus to die for us so that we can have that right standing. So that realization, all we are and everything that we have comes from God, makes us truly humble. And so we don't have to project a false humility We can truly be humble because of who we are in Christ. So Peter gives us five virtues or characteristics of a winsome follower of Christ. Now he's going to go on to talk about how we ought to be winsome in the way that we speak, in the way that we act. He continues in verse 9, he says, that we should not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So he says that we should not return evil for evil or insult for insult. Some Christian thinkers have actually seized upon this verse and have said this is the basis for Christian pacifism. In other words, Christians should never enter the military, they should never engage in war, and should never defend themselves. And yet that's not what Peter's talking about here. Remember the context. He's talking about people undergoing mistreatment in their culture, in their society. And Peter says, in order to lead people to Christ, you should endure that and not retaliate. That we should withhold this desire that we have to to strike back when people mistreat us. And he says, instead, we should give a blessing. So it's not that we should just prevent ourselves from lashing out at people, but also that we positively go out and give a blessing. I remember years ago reading this story from a guy named Watchman Nee who was probably writing 60 or 70 years ago. He was a Chinese Christian author. And he described how in South China, a Christian man had a rice terrace. And I don't know if you've ever seen one of these, but 
in different parts of Asia, you'll have these rice terraces that are actually cut into a hill. And typically a village, the people in that village will own different terraces along that hill. So during a particularly difficult drought, a Christian man one day spent pretty much the whole morning pumping water into one of his terraces because in a rice field, you need to keep it submerged with water. Now, his neighbor owned the rice fields or terraces right below his. That evening, his neighbor snuck out in the middle of the night and breached his retaining wall, the Christian man's retaining wall, thus allowing all the water to fill up his field. And so the Christian man came out the next day, patched up the breach, and then refilled the water in his terrace. And of course, the next night, the same thing happened. So this Christian man decided he's going to convene his Christian friends in the village to kind of discuss, what should I do? And so he explained, I'm really confused. I want to do the right thing here. And so they spent some time praying together. And one of the men there had an idea. He said, is it really the best thing to just simply do what's right in this situation? If so, we are truly poor Christians. And so uh, this man was inspired by what he said and decided the next morning to wake up early and he filled up not only his terrace with water, but then his neighbors below. And so that afternoon, his neighbor came to him. He said, why did you do that? And that actually led to a spiritual conversation. And sometime later, this man came to Christ. And so what we have here is really a wonderful picture of what it means to bless, right? That we shouldn't just simply be reserved, that we shouldn't you know, withhold that desire that we have to strike back, but instead we should give a blessing, we should show love. And he says, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. One of the reasons why we can hold back from striking back against people who hurt us or mistreat us is because God says that one day he will reward us. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12, blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. So he says, remember, you're storing up reward in heaven as you endure persecution And love those who persecute you and insult you. Then he says in verse 10 and 12. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So Peter Remember, he's writing in the first century. There wasn't a New Testament. So he knows that these claims that he's making here, what he's advancing would have been very difficult for his audience to digest and, and, and actually believe in. And so he looks back to his scripture, which was the Old Testament, to back up his claims. He says in verse 13, he says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? In other words... 
axiomatically, we should realize if you're trying to live a good life, people aren't going to mess with you most of the time. But, he says, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Notice, he says, do not fear their intimidation. Sometimes this persecution they experience broke out into violence. But most of the time it was intimidation. It was that they were being ostracized. It was that they were being made fun of for their beliefs, viewed as second-class citizens. And again, I think there's a little bit of crossover to our modern day. I think if Peter was writing this to us, he would say, don't worry about what these people are saying about you on the Internet. They're saying it behind a keyboard in their basement. Don't worry about them. Don't be troubled by what they're saying. Finally, he points to how we can give a winsome response to those who ask about our faith. 1 Peter 3, verse 15 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet do so with gentleness and reverence. I think right off the bat, you're just like, what? Sanctify? I don't even know what that means. Who uses that language today? This word sanctify just simply means to set apart or to show reverence to. So I think what Peter is actually trying to say here is regard or acknowledge Jesus as Lord in your hearts. In other words, people should see that your convictions, that your beliefs are strongly held and are based on what you know to be true. Not based on some sort of subjective feeling that you get that this is the right thing. He also says that we should always be ready to make a defense. Uh, This is the Greek word apologia. And you might be thinking, well, this probably means to apologize, which is a good thing if you're wrong. But in this case, you're right. This actually was a technical term that was used to describe a legal defense that somebody would give. Look at Acts chapter 26, verse 1, where King Agrippa is actually allowing Paul the Apostle to explain why he's there. He says, you're permitted to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. And what did he do? He used that as an opportunity not only to explain why he was there and why he was being wrongly accused but also to share his faith with King Agrippa. Now, Peter isn't thinking about this strictly in legal terms. He says that we should make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. In other words, there are going to be people who ask you questions about your faith. People are very skeptical about Christianity in our culture. We're living in a post-Christian culture. And so what what Peter is saying is you need to be ready for questions that people have. And you might be thinking to yourself, that's kind of intimidating. There's a lot of questions out there. Yes, that's, that's true. But if you roll up your sleeves, if you put in the hard work and you actually do the study, you'll discover that there are 
variations of the same question, but I would say that there's a few dozen questions that people typically ask about Christianity that have a really satisfying answer. And in cases where people ask you a question where you're just dumbfounded, like, uh, never heard that before, good question, you should be honest. You shouldn't be like making stuff up on the spot. You should say, listen, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. But look, I'm going to look into this and maybe we can have another talk about this and hopefully I'll have a pretty good answer for you. And so Peter urges us not only to have strong faith, not only to live in a way that is attractive to the people who are watching us, but also to be able to engage people intellectually because people have real doubts about Christianity. I know I did. And yet he says we should do this with gentleness and reverence. In other words, we shouldn't fight, we shouldn't attack, we shouldn't try to just win the argument because it's possible to win the argument and yet not persuade the person you're talking to. And so it's important that we do this in a way that is respectful and in a way that is not defensive. So, okay, why should we believe in something? Great question. And maybe one of the reasons why we should actually roll up our sleeves and do the hard work of actually looking at the evidence for Christianity is because we need to have a conviction that is strongly held but rooted in evidence. Should we believe because we just grew up believing in it? You know, that's fine if you grew up in a Christian home. There's nothing wrong with that. But if the only reason you believe in Christianity is because you grew up in a church and because you had Christian parents who always raised you as Christians, that is not enough to get you through, get you through the hard times that you're going to face ahead. When suffering comes into your life, when you hear an argument that just knocks the wind out of you and you don't know how to respond and now you have doubts. So no, that's not a sufficient reason for belief. Maybe because believing in this makes you feel better. I like having hope in something. Well, the problem is if you have hope in something that's false, you have false hope that's going to disappoint you. So again, that is not a great reason for believing. What about because your friends believe in it? I mean, I'm around a lot of people who seem really smart. They happen to have strongly held beliefs in Christianity, so maybe this is right. Again, you may have a lot of friends who believe in Christianity, but that should not be your basis for following God and living for him. Maybe it's because it works for you. Well, there are a lot of things that seem to work, but actually are not true. You know, a lot of us grew up believing in Santa Claus. And our parents propagated this lie, <laughs> convincing us that if we were obedient during Christmas time, that on that basis, Santa would give us presents whether we were naughty or nice. And so what did that do? That caused us to be obedient, to try to follow our parents and be good kids so that we could get presents. And yet the realization is what? Santa's not real. Some of you look really sad, like that was a traumatic memory from your past. 
So there's a good example of how something that produces the, the right kind of results is actually false and should not be believed. Why should you believe? The reason you should believe is because it's actually true. That's why you should believe. Because, like I said, you're going to go through hard times. You're going to face trials. You're going to go through intense suffering in your lives. And the only thing that you're going to be able to grasp onto during those times is the truth. You're going to have doubts. You're going to struggle in your faith. And your friends are not going to get you out of that. Your upbringing in Christianity is not going to get you out of that. The only thing that's going to get you out of that time is the truth. Well, there's plenty of evidence for belief. Contrary to what a lot of people say about Christianity, there's a lot of evidence for belief. Now, I think a lot of people look at these two words in the same clause and think those two words don't belong together. Belief and evidence. When I think of faith, I think of like a leap of faith where you do something or believe in something that seems highly improbable. And yet I remember as a skeptic who lost his faith, probably when I was like nine or 10 years old, encountering some arguments for belief in Christianity. And I just remember being totally blown away by this. Now, first of all, there are multiple lines of evidence which suggests that Christianity is true. But none of them absolutely prove that Christianity is truthful. I think that there are some people who make claims that are a little bit too ambitious, like this is going to prove to you that Christianity is absolutely true. I don't think that there's any argument that does this or accomplishes it. However, I think that there are multiple lines of evidence that produce a compelling case that suggests that Christianity is true. You know, you think about maybe there is a trial where a man is being charged with murder. And so the prosecution puts together a compelling case for why this man is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So what does he do? He produces independent witnesses who are there the night of the scene of the crime, and said that they described seeing this man with a gun in his hand firing the pistol. And then sometime later in the trial, the prosecution puts forward evidence where they were able to recover the pistol from this man's house that actually matches the casings found at the, the scene of the crime. And then on top of that, they were able to recover his sneakers that had blood on his shoes from the victim, which was like the icing on the cake. On those three pieces of evidence, you could say beyond a reasonable doubt, this man is guilty of murder. And so in the same way, you can look at several lines of evidence for Christianity and on that basis conclude with some level of certainty that God is real and that Christianity is probably true. I think one area is called the argument from design. This was actually one that influenced me and uh, was the argument that I first heard that really blew me away. Now let's begin by pointing out the universe had a beginning. This is not very controversial. 
in the late 1920s, Edwin Hubble discovered this phenomenon known as the red shift. And what he noticed as he was looking out into the, into the, into the night sky was that there was actually light from these distant stars from distant galaxies and that the light that it was emitting was actually shifted to the red side of the spectrum, which meant that the wavelength of light was actually elongated. Now, for some of us, if you're like me, more of a humanities major, this is a little bit confusing, okay? Let me see if I can try to help you. You know, when you're pulled over because you hear an ambulance coming, right? You'll notice as the ambulance is coming toward you, the pitch of the siren actually rises as it gets closer and closer. And then when it finally passes you, you hear a sudden drop in the pitch. And the reason for that is the sound waves are actually being compressed. When the ambulance is moving toward you, Whereas as it's moving away from you, it's being elongated. So likewise, Edwin Hubble noticed this redshift and realized that these distant stars from distant galaxies emitting light were actually moving further and further away from the earth. And so by inference, he was able to conclude that the universe was expanding outward. And from that, he was able to then infer that at some point, long, long time ago in the universe's history, that actually the universe was contained. All of the energy, all of the mass, all of space and time was contained in a single mathematical point without any dimensions. And some, somewhere around 14 billion years ago, there was this explosion called the Big Bang and brought about the existence of our universe. So most people look at this, and it's, most people accept this. The thing that's really interesting, though, is that the discovery of big, the Big Bang cosmology has caused scientists to puzzle over the so-called fine-tuning of the universe. That there are these different constants in the universe, physical constants, that have a range of value that is so specific that they, if they were off even by just a little bit, it would have had huge ramifications for the universe and likely would not produce life. Here are, there are a lot of different constants out here, but the 34 constants that most scientists agree with are on this list. And we're not going to go through all of these, but just to take a couple samples, right? Take, for example, the strong nuclear force. This is the force that holds together protons and neutrons within the nucleus of an atom. Scientists point out that if it was larger, no hydrogen would form. Uh, atomic nuclei for most life-essential elements would be unstable, and then there would be no life chemistry. If it was smaller, even by a small amount, no elements heavier than hydrogen would form. Again, there would be no life chemistry. What about this one, the gravitational force constant? Some of us have seen this. Some of us have nightmares of this. This is Newton's law of gravitation, okay? The M's represent the mass of two objects. The R represents the distance between the centers of those mass. 
the G represents a constant that never changes. And that is the gravitational force constant. So what about this? If, let's say, G was just 5% stronger, what would happen? In a word, everyone dies. Maybe a more complicated explanation, everyone fries. If gravity was 5% stronger, the earth would pass around the sun 10% closer, which would trigger catastrophic climate change and widespread famine that no Tesla would ever fix. (laughs) Stephen Hawking, the famed astrophysicist, says the laws of science as we know them at present contain many fundamental numbers like the size of the electric charge of the electron. And the remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. For example, if the electric charge of the electron had only been slightly different, stars would either have been able to, to burn hydrogen and helium or else they would never have exploded. It seems clear that there are few ranges of values that would allow the development of any form of intelligent life. Most values would give rise to universes that, although they might be very beautiful, would contain no one able to wonder at their beauty. Now, Stephen Hawking is obviously a very famous scientist, and he, on his deathbed interview, said that he did not believe in God and did not believe in an afterlife. So here we have somebody who is an agnostic scientist saying that when you look out into the universe and you Look at all of these constants. They appear to be finely tuned. Paul Davies, who's a physicist at Arizona State University, says it's virtually impossible that the universe came to these correct parameters for life by simple chance, because so many of these numbers must all lie within such a small range of values. If the initial explosion of the Big Bang had differed in strength by as little as one part in 10 to the 60th, the universe would have either quickly collapsed back onto itself or expanded too rapidly for stars to form. In either case, life would be impossible. An accuracy of one part in 10 to the 60 can be compared to firing a bullet at a one-inch target on the other side of the observable universe 20 billion light years away and hitting that target. Again, he is a scientist. He, to my knowledge, has no religious affiliation. Richard Dawkins, the high priest of atheism, (laughs) says, Physicists have calculated that if the laws and constants of physics had been even slightly different, the universe would have developed in such a way that life would have been totally impossible. Different physicists put it different ways, but the conclusion is always much the same. It is indeed perfectly plausible that there is only one way for a universe to be. But why did that one way have to be such a setup for our eventual evolution. Again, Dawkins here is saying, when I look at the universe and these finely tuned constants, it's difficult for me to wrap my mind around how they seem to be directed toward life. Now, it's, I think, a little bit hard for us to fathom some of these odds um, so I wanted to provide some that may, maybe are a little bit more close to home. Odds of getting a royal flush in poker on the first five cards dealt is one in 649,000. 
Highly improbable. Hitting the Powerball jackpot is one in 300 million. That's one over 30 to the seventh power. Being born with 11 fingers or toes. One in 500. It means one of you in here are special. Becoming the president of the United States, one in 10 million. A meteor landing on your house and killing you, 182 trillion to one. Chance of an American home having at least one container of ice cream in the freezer, about nine in 10. Being called to come down at the price is right, 1 in 36, if you make it into the studio, right? Going blind after laser eye surgery, ooh, 1 in 5 million. You know, for those of you who have an appointment, good luck. <laughs> Striking it rich on the Antiques Roadshow, 1 in 60,000, not too bad. Being injured by a toilet, 1 in 10,000. Funny how that's worded, buy a toilet, as if the toilet, the stationary object, injured you, right? <laughs> Cracking open a triple yoked egg, one in 25 million. It's amazing. Hope that happens in my lifetime. <laughs> Dying from your pajamas, catching on fire, one in 30 million. The Cleveland Indians slash Guardians winning a World Series. Only God knows, right? <laughs> so you look at all these odds, and okay, um, one scientist actually tried to tabulate all of the constants and the odds of that actually happening. And he came up with this figure. There, actually, there isn't even really a number for this. They actually created a term to describe it, which is infinitesimal, meaning nearly infinitely small. And just to give you an idea of what this looks like, it is one over 1,240 zeros. And yes, I counted all of those. Just to give you an idea. Robert Jastrow, who is an astronomer and NASA scientist, says the details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. We scientists did not expect to find evidence for the abrupt beginning because... We have had, until fairly recently, such extraordinary, extraordinary success in tracing the chain of cause and effect backward in time. For scientists who have lived by this faith in the power of reason, the story sort of ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he finally pulls himself over the final rock, only to be greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. You know, one of the things that God says is, in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. Well, some of the naturalistic responses are, first of all, the multiverse. This is based on a theory called string th theory, which is a uh, highly theoretical mathematical theory, which posits different dimensions that exist. Here is one of the physicists, American physicists, Michio Kaku, 
who actually uh, made this famous today. Well, there are two philosophies you can take consistent with all we know about the universe. One is the Copernican principle, and the other is the anthropic principle. The Copernican principle says that there's nothing special about humans, nothing special about us, nothing special about our piece of the universe. We're very ordinary. We exist with billions and billions and trillions of stars, uh, billions of planets, perhaps, in the universe. We're almost insignificant. We're nothing. We're less than nothing. <laughs> That's the Copernican principle. The anthropic principle says, wait a minute, wait a minute. We are special. We are so special that we're the only, perhaps the only universe among a whole collection of universes that have intelligent life. So we have two opposite extremes. Now, Douglas Adams, the, the humorist, okay. once wrote about the insanity machine, a machine designed to drive anyone totally <laughs> insane. You go in the machine. You see a picture of the entire universe, the entire universe with an arrow saying, you are here. <laughs> and that's designed to drive any sane person insane because you realize how insignificant. You're not even a bug. You're not even an atom. You're less than nothing with regards to the Copernican principle. I think we are special. We are special, first of all, because we have the conditions for life. DNA, and even consciousness. Our universe really is special. It is fine-tuned, perhaps fine-tuned by luck, but it is fine-tuned nonetheless. So I think we really are special. Our universe, in some sense, knew we were coming. We are in a universe that makes intelligent life possible. Does that give any corroboration, any confidence, any increased probability to some sort of a non-physical explanation for the universe? Well, some may say that maybe a god chose the universe to be where it is, and we are winners of a cosmic jackpot. Hmm. However, the, the, even a Las Vegas better wouldn't give you those odds, because the odds that we would land right precisely where the jackpot is, is so small. There's several ways you can look at it. One way to look at it is that string theory, which seems to give you this multiverse of universes, is not in its final form. That perhaps there is a, a form higher than string theory. I tend to lean this direction, that string theory is not in its final picture. It's not in its final form. There's another way to explain it. And this is that perhaps universes evolve, that as these universes die, Baby universes are created by advanced civilizations, and the DNA is precisely the physical constants of the universe. As each universe begins to die, and baby universes are created by intelligent beings that split off, their DNA changes. The nature of stars, the structure of galaxies, they change, and an evolution takes place. This would require a super, super advanced civilization to be able to create... Unimaginably advanced, but this is consistent with the laws mm -hmm. of physics as we know them. And this would allow for an evolution of universes. So it's no accident, therefore, that our universe is, has the DNA of life, that is, the existence of stars, existence of planets in DNA. It's no accident that it has these conditions because it was a spin-off of another universe. And we are, in some sense, winners not of a cosmic jackpot. We are simply winners of survival of the fittest. So in... So... Uh, one of the problems with this is Brian Greene, who's actually a theoretical physicist, physicist and string theorist, 
points out it'll be extremely hard, if not impossible, for us to ever know if the multiverse picture is even true. Even if there are other universes, we can imagine that we will never actually come into contact with them. In other words, it's unobservable whether this, this is, these other universes are out there. And so let's say we get rid of multiverse. What we're left with then is what, um, you know, uh, that physicist was saying, Kaku, where he says it's probably that there are advanced life forms who are actually spinning off these universes, these baby universes that come from dying universes. So I'll let you decide what you think is more plausible, that there are advanced creatures out there in the universe creating universes like ours, or that there is a multiverse of universes that we cannot actually observe, or that maybe there was actually a creator who created the universe in which we live. You know, one way to look at this is randomly picking a perfect March Madness bracket. The odds of doing that totally randomly is one in ten quintillion. Of course, most people put a little bit of thought into this. You know, I like these colors of the team that I'm picking. And so if you do that, it's about one in 100 billion. And so you think, those are not bad odds, right? But to be consistent with what we see in the fine-tuning of the universe, to match the odds of the fine-tuning of the universe, you would have to pick a perfect bracket 122 times in a row. And to date, there is no verified perfect March Madness bracket for as long as they've been doing it. So as you look at these different things, right, these different constants, it appears that they all seem to line up in such a way that it's targeted. You know, imagine that you committed a crime and you were sentenced to death. And this was a long time ago, and they decided to sentence you to death by death squad. So they stand you up by a wall, blindfold you, and they get a hundred expert marksmen. And you hear the guns fire all at once. And afterward, you seem to be alive. And so you check your body and you notice there aren't any holes and you realize I'm not shot. So obviously, even expert marksmen occasionally miss. But the likelihood that a hundred expert marksmen would miss seems very unlikely. A better explanation would be that they intentionally missed. And what we see here is this presents an argument for God's existence, that God actually let, left behind breadcrumbs of his creative hand. King David says in Psalm 19, verse 1 through 4, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into the earth, their words to the ends of the world. God has created the universe, the observable galaxy, for us to conclude he is there. We're running out of time here. Let's draw some conclusions. First thing is, the only good reason to believe in something is because it's true. It's not because your friends believe it. It's not because you grew up believing it. It's because you are convinced intellectually that it's true. Secondly, you need to be ready to give a defense for your faith. 
You need to roll up your sleeves. You need to put in the hard work. You need to first be convinced so that you can have a ready answer for people who ask difficult questions. Finally, if you're here tonight and you are maybe a guest and maybe you're intrigued by this, I want to suggest that you investigate this further and we actually have a book available for you uh, at the coffee bar called Discovering God. And it lays out evidence for belief in Christianity that uh, hopefully you'll find compelling. We want to give that to you as a gift for free. Lord, thanks that you give us evidence for belief in you. Uh, I think some of us may be struggling with doubts right now. Some of us are unsure whether you're real. Some of us are unsure about your Bible's claims. And I pray that they can uh, wrestle um, through the, their faith and um, that they can come out on the other side uh, having deeper faith in you. We're grateful that you are not afraid of us having doubts or wrestling in our faith, but that you actually encourage us to think about these things because you know that there are satisfying answers out there. And so I pray for those of us especially who maybe are investigating Christianity, who are trying to find our way in the world. I pray that uh, we would continue to just give you a chance and to try to look into the evidence that you present us. And um, we pray that we can also have a great time hanging out here tonight. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.